found myself mesmerized in that video by the people in the background. <laughs> did you find yourself watching the people in the background? So did I. Oh, look, there's... Oh. Well, indeed. Mission M 2.0, we uh, shared our, our vision and plans two weeks ago. And uh, for these seven weeks, we're going to be talking about matters related to it. And uh, that includes last weekend, Pastor uh, Ray preached here on uh, God's church being uh, red, yellow, black, and white. They're all precious in his sight, that there is one church. And uh, I actually spoke at Cedar Lake, the message I'm giving here today. And Ray's over there now giving that message at that campus. And uh, so that's how we've uh, done it for these two messages. But we're going to continue. We're going to talk about... Uh, what it means to be an individual who is on mission and our own role in personal evangelism and reaching the people in our spheres of influence. Uh, we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about, uh, well, we're going to talk about what I'm talking about today here. And I'll get into that just for a second. I got to say, though, you know, it's not every day you dedicate a baby. And I just have to, uh, you know, over the years here, I have led in those dedication moments, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids that we've dedicated over the years. Uh, and for, uh, for, it to, for me to be standing there on the other side of that, I was nervous as the mic came to me. <laughs> What's my name? <laughs> All these people are looking at me. It's a pretty unnerving little moment there when you're on that end of the experience. So, man, I got grace for all the parents now. But uh, really, really exciting, and congratulations to all the families. And uh, excitement in my own family, of course, for uh, getting to say publicly to you and to the Lord what has been in our hearts from the moment we found out that we were pregnant, and that is how much we want her to come to saving faith. And so... Thank you for committing to helping us do that in her life. By God's grace, we will. You know, Mission Them is entitled that for a reason. How easy it is in churches to really be about, about, uh, about us. We talked about this, the difference between a cruise ship church and a battleship church. Cruise ship churches, uh, they're all about their own comfort. Uh, as long as the, the sailing is smooth and nobody rearranges the deck chairs, uh, we're happy and we're on board. Uh, but a battleship is entirely in a different uh, purpose. A battleship is not about the personal comfort of the, uh, of the soldiers. It is about winning wars and projecting into enemy territory uh, power. And we want to be a battleship church. And I think Mission Them 1.0 was a test of how much we are that way. I think Mission Them 2.0 will be that same test on steroids. Because uh, now here we are looking at uh, not only uh, new sites, but extending across some of the barriers that in society oftentimes make us uncomfortable, those ethnic barriers in particular. Uh, But we believe God loves this city. And if God loves it, then we should as well, and to love it in action, and to go and to take the gospel uh, to every ethne. Now, wouldn't that be great, though, if we could do that, about helping all them people out there? You know, they all have all those, they, they need to live, they need to know Jesus, they need to live for Jesus, they need to know what it means to live for his glory, they need to know and understand what it means to live with Christ as your great treasure, they need to understand what it is to live seeking first the kingdom of God, we've missioned them, we've got to go, I'm all on board with that, we got to go and go and do that, and boy, those people there, they... They really need that. And wouldn't it be a shame if Mission Them missed the fact that God is not only interested in making disciples and multiplying disciples, but making quality disciples right here. And what if we do Mission Them and the whole time we're Mission Them, we are ourselves living by the same values and the empty idolatry of the world around us that they are already living by? Now, that would be a shame, wouldn't it? If we were mission them, but we weren't first mission us. 
Indeed, I think it would be. In fact, I'd call it hypocrisy, wouldn't you? You need Jesus, but we're going to live by the values that you already have without him. So today, we are going to bring God's word to bear on one clear indication of where our hearts really are at, of our, the, the actual spirituality, consecration, sanctification. There's big words there. How do you know if you love Jesus or not? There's an easy way to say it, okay? How do you know? And uh, Jesus himself gives us one objective, clear indicator of what we really value. And our text is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. This is a long teaching section in your Bibles. If you've got the red letter edition like mine is, there's, it's all red. And the reason it's all red is that this is the Sermon on the Mount. It starts in chapter 5, goes all the way to chapter 7. Famous teaching of Jesus. People the world over quote it. Politicians quote Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Out of context, I might add, but uh, they do love to quote it. And uh, in this section of Scripture, Jesus is going to say some things that would have shocked the people that were listening. See if it shocks you today. Here's what it says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, the people that had gathered there, Jesus is on a, on a mountain, a large hill probably in our vernacular, although in Indiana we probably call it a mountain. Uh, and the people have gathered there for him to, to hear what he has to say. And it's almost in this whole section, it's almost like Jesus is playing the opposite game. Have you ever played the opposite game? where you you have fun with people and you mean the opposite of what you're saying. It's like sarcasm to the max. Uh, But it's kind of fun if they know that you mean the opposite of what you're actually saying. So you can say your hair looks horrible, uh, but you mean, of course, your hair looks beautiful. Or this food is raunchy and terrible, but you're saying it's succulent and luscious. It's It's the opposite game. Play it later. Anyway, it's like Jesus is playing the opposite game because he is saying here the opposite of what they had always been told. In that culture, there was an understanding as it relates to material possessions and resources that the more that you have, it was a sign of God's favor in your life. And so people would go around and they would see people, rich people, and they would think to themselves, ah, God's favor is upon them. They must be right with God. How do I know? Because they have so much stuff. And Jesus, over and over and over again, pounds against that materialistic mindset, famously, for example, saying, you know, it's hard for the rich to be saved. And do you remember the disciples going, what? He says, yeah, I would compare it. It's it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And the disciples' response is, well, then who can be saved? If the rich can't be saved, then we're all going to hell because riches are a sign of God's favor. They had been told that all their life. That's what the religious leaders had taught them. And yet Jesus comes along here and he says the opposite. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Don't do it. Now for us, this is maybe not, I don't know if it's shocking, but it's certainly un-American. Don't you think? I mean, the, the, the whole point of being an American in some people's minds, many people's minds, is to live where there are riches and where I can be a part of the American dream, which is the house, the car, the savings account, the accumulation of more and more stuff to make sure that I have a little bit more than my neighbors, the Joneses, who I'm not only keeping up with, I am wanting to crush. I mean, the the American dream is materialistic. It is about laying up treasures on earth. And Jesus 
is not playing an opposite game. He is playing the truth game, and he is saying, don't do that. Do not lay up treasures on earth. Now we can say, well, Jesus, that's, uh, why not? Why not live for things? And he points out here now a couple reasons that this is a very foolish way to live. The first thing he says is that every material, financial, asset, resource that I have and try to keep, I have to give it up. It is fleeting. It is fleeting. Notice how he says it flees or fleets. Is that a word? I don't know. How does, how does our money and our things, how do they fleet? Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So Jesus has some financial advice here. It's as relevant today as ever. He says, realize, friends, the things that you are living for and killing yourself at the office for and spending so much time and effort trying to accumulate, they are all in a perpetual state of depreciation. The moth comes and eats it up. And that's a statement regarding the way that clothing was one of the assets of that day. And they would pile up their clothing. But the moth can come and eat the clothing. And then what happens to the value of the clothing with a great big hole in it? Right? The moth eats it up. It's gone. Rust comes and destroys it. And we know this to be the case as well. The brand spanking new house gets old. And that new car that was so shiny, it gets old and it gets rusty. And really, everything that we have is in a state of declension. And he goes, he goes beyond that to talk about how thieves can break in and steal. Last week when I preached this at Cedar Lake, that morning, I read in the paper right here in Crown Point, somebody broke into a, uh, someone's house. And it must have been a woman because they stole all the jewelry out of the house. It did. It happened here. Okay? She had all these valuables, all these... Gone. Gone. Thieves can break in and steal. So our, everything is going down. It's all risky. It's all fleeting. And if it's not being stolen, my perspective on it can change. I remember, for example, when... Do you remember when the first iPhones came out? You're not that old. The first iPhones came out and when they came out, it was like, I mean, it was like this, almost like a whole new category of technology and frankly, coolness. And when they first came out, if you didn't have an Apple store nearby, you know, you saw it on the news, but you never actually saw one live. And then, you know, coworker or somebody gets it and you're like, can I, can, can, can I hold that a second? You know, and you look at it, it's so sleek. It's so, it's like gleaming, you know, it's so wonderful. Maybe you went out and bought one. Okay. So you bought an iPhone 4. And for those first days, you thought you were the coolest guy in the block, didn't you? Because you had this thing with panache, the iPhone 4. Until the iPhone 5 came out, right? Now, 24 hours before the iPhone 5 came out, you looked at that phone and you said, you know what, this is cool and because I own it, I'm cool. 24 hours later, when they announced the iPhone 5, you looked at that same phone, and what did you say? This is a piece of junk. I can't believe I've got this phone. i got to get the 5 if I'm going to keep cool, right? What changed? Did the phone change? Phone didn't change. My perspective on it did, didn't it? And Jesus, just in one simple statement, indicts the entire approach to life so often lived by people in a world that is passing away, the Bible says. And all the things we have and accumulate and, the, and, the, and the, the, the money in the bank account and the money in the stock market and the pension fund and the cool investment car and the house and all the things that people running and striving for, all of it is so risky, right? It is declining. It is depreciating. It is fleeing. As Proverbs says, it can take wings and suddenly fly away. You know, to live for things that can fly away so easily, that'd be really stupid, don't you think? To live for things that are in a perpetual state of risk and depreciation, that would be really short-sighted, wouldn't it? 
This is the point of the parable that Jesus told of the rich man, the foolish rich man. He says there once was a man, he was a farmer, and one year there was this incredible bumper crop. For whatever reason, every th- field that he had had its greatest put out ever, and so they, he, he suddenly had this windfall of money. And he says, the, the, in the parable, he says, you know what the man thought to himself? What am I going to do with all my money? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. And then I'm going to sit back and I'm going to take life at ease. I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink. I'm going to, I'm going to be merry. And it's going to be fantastic. And Jesus tells the parable, that very night he died. And God says to him, now what will come of all the things that you have accumulated? And he is pointing out the ultimate reason that this is a very foolish way to live is that all of us are going to die. And when we die, what do we get to keep of all the things that we've accumulated? Nothing, right? Imagine spending your life accumulating things that in the end you don't get to keep. Who do that? I mean, that sounds really silly, doesn't it? And Jesus says, you don't get to keep anything. All of it is passing away. And when we die, as the old saying goes, you never see a a hearse uh, hauling a U-Haul, right? Never. We all die and we pass into the next life with nothing. Nothing at all. Laying up treasures on earth. We could spend a little time talking about what that lifestyle would look like. I'd like to take a stab at it. What if somebody said, ah, Jesus, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Tony Robbins is really the guy I'm following. So I'm going to go for it. What would that lifestyle look like? How about this? Meaning and happiness would be generally derived from how things are going in my life financially. Everything in my life would be monetized and prioritized based on whether it gets me to my financial goal or not. People who get me there, I love them. People that get in the way of me getting there, I hate them. Since self-worth is financial... Not only do I want more, I resent anyone who has more than me. I resent their car. I envy their house. And I really hate it when I think that they think they're worth more than me because they have more than I have. I hate those people. Family is inconvenient. Children are liabilities. And don't even talk to me about the church building program. If you're living for here and now, is that close? And this is why I think we have to realize that Jesus isn't here onerously saying to us, all right, I know it's great to have, but my goal here is to annoy you and to make it hard on you. He is wanting to free us from the bondage and the emptiness of living for things. That is, an, that is an idol. And idols are cruel taskmasters. And maybe you're here today, and your whole life has been all about accumulating things. You're like the man I described here. Everything's monetized in your life. And yet you are empty, and you're wondering, why do I feel the way that I do? You're not made to live for things and money and bank accounts. You are made in the image of God. You are made for something far greater and beyond this. And Jesus is doing us a favor by pointing out the futility of living for things. Do not lay up treasures on earth. Don't do it. Now, the other thing that he says here is that every material financial resource that I give is mine forever. Now, that sounds a little bit like an oxymoron. What I keep, I give up. But what I give, I keep. But that's exactly what he is saying here. He says, don't lay up treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And he goes on in the passage to talk about the central issue that keeps most of us from living a generous life, and that is trust. He goes on to talk about the lilies and the sparrows. 
They're not harvesting or they're not planting and harvesting. They're not worrying about what they're going to wear. And yet God meets the need of the sparrow. And who has ever seen anyone clothed as beautifully as the lily in the field? And Jesus says, you are worth more than sparrows and more than lilies. And your heavenly father knows what you need. Do not be anxious about these things. Maybe you walked in here today, you're, you're worry ward about this, that, or the other, and it's just dominating your life. Jesus wants to free you from that. But to free us from it, we have to kill the idol that creates it. And that idol is the sense of security that my possessions and my things can seemingly give me, even though it is a mirage. This frees us in verse 33 to seek first the kingdom of God. So there's something not to do and there's something to do. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Lay up treasures in heaven. Now what are those treasures? What's he talking about there? Is that like monopoly money or something? Heavenly monopoly money? What kind of treasure is Jesus promising? Well, throughout the scriptures, this is taught all over the place. That there are treasures and rewards that God will give to those who serve him. Here's my definition, eternal treasure. These are God's rewards to us individually, individually, for our faithful service and sacrificial giving to him. And it certainly goes beyond money. This goes to my heart, my time, my, my gifts that I give to the Lord and all of that. But the reason that Jesus says this regarding money is he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Did you hear that, everyone? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying here that money is spiritual. That money that you have in your billfold right now, and by saying it, some of you can feel that billfold in your hindquarters. If you're a man, that money that you have there, that is as spiritual, if not more spiritual, specifically what you do with it than reading the Bible, than evangelizing, than praying, than gathering for worship and any other number of things that you can say. He indexes our hearts to where our treasure is, where your treasure is, there your heart is, where your heart is, your treasure will be as well. They always flow Together, And here is why we have this wonderful objective indicator of where our hearts are actually at. I can't see my heart, right? I can't see it. But I can see my pocketbook and I can see my checkbook. And Jesus is saying, if you want to know what you really love, where your heart is really at, Look at where you invest your money. Look at where you spend your money. Look at where you give your money so freely, so effortlessly. Our money flows towards what our hearts love. It seems to me that in in this culture, when Jesus was speaking there, the struggle that they had was they wanted to see finances as an indicator of faith, okay, or favor from God. The more that you had, the more favor that you had from God, those two always went together. Therefore, the rich are going to heaven. What we struggle with in our culture, it seems to me, is that we want to separate our faith from our finances. We don't want to see a connection between those two. So that I want to be able to look in the mirror and to see myself as being, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I am a, I'm a godly man. And I love the Lord. And I am going to church regularly. And I sing with volume. I read my Bible every day. Pray the Lord's Prayer in the morning. I am a godly, I'm way better than most people I know. I am, a, I am a godly person. But I, I, in terms of like money and all that, that's kind of like my thing. We want to separate those two. And what Jesus says is you cannot separate those two. Our finances, our money, and our faith, and our treasure, and our hearts, they always, always go together. And this is why whenever you talk about this subject, it smokes out the pretenders in the church. Larry Osborne's a pastor in California. He writes about this in his book. He says uh, he had an experience in his church where there was a guy, he was complaining about everything. 
everything was a hill to die on, and he was so about doctrine, and he was so about this and so about that. And uh, finally, he got upset about something in the church, and he fired off a letter to the church office, and he said, I demand that you give back to me every dollar I've ever given to this place. Well, they did a little looking into it, and they wrote him back a letter, and the letter said, Dear Sir, we will be happy to give you back every dollar you've ever given to us, and if we ever find one, we'll be sure to give it to you. It smokes out the pretenders. I'm a godly person. I'm a great man. But what are you doing with your money, my dear friend? And what does that indicate about what you really love? It's like, the, it's like a butterfly. Jesus saying here, your, 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 your faith, I'm sorry, your, your heart and your treasure. Okay, it's like the two wings of a butterfly. There it is like that. You want to see it on the screen? There it is on the screen, Okay. Flying around. You, you, never see, you never see this. You never see the one, a one-winged butterfly, do you? All, they always go together. And that is what Jesus is saying. What we really love and where we put our money are always going together. We've got all these grandparents here for you know, this dedication and then family and all the rest. Had the cute ones up here. And who knows how many education funds have been set up and little savings accounts that have been set up and little things, this or that. Grandparents' money flowing towards the grandchild. Why, you love that grandchild. That's great. My parents are here, amen, to that. Uh, (laughs) But we all understand that, don't we? And Jesus is just saying that. What you love is where your money goes. Always go together. Was this not the point of the widow and her two mites? Do you remember the story? It's in Luke chapter uh, 21. If you're interested in reading it letter, Jesus was at the temple. And he's there, and here comes all of these uh, people, and they're giving their gifts at the temple. And the way they used to give in that day, they had a box in front of the temple. And the people would come, and uh, this is before you could give online. All right, 2,000 years ago, there was no online giving at the temple in Jerusalem. And so they would have to bring their, their gifts with them. And so they would come and they would drop their bags of coinage in the box. And so the rich would come and they would drop their, their coinage in. And you can hear it, can't you? And here comes the bag number one. Boom, it goes in the box. And people are like, oh, whoa, that sounded kind of loud. That must have been a big gift. And here comes another guy. Boom, it goes. And people are like, whoa, that dude gave a lot. And then here comes the next guy. And maybe he holds it a little higher to give it more effect, you know. Kind of like in the offering plate, you drop the coins from the top, you know. And this one's boom, it goes, you know. And people are like, whoa. And Jesus is sitting there going. <sighs> then here comes this widow. Okay, here she comes. She's, you know doing this number like this and not all widows walk like this but I, it fits the story for me she comes up and 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 it says that she has two mites this is less than one cent two little coins and she comes up to the box and she goes blink blink jesus says hey you guys get over here the disciples over they come he says, did you see that Did you see what she just gave? And they're like, "Uh, yes, Jesus, we did. We would value it at roughly two mites. And Jesus says, she gave more than anybody else. And they go, "Uh, no, Jesus, I think your math is off. Did you not hear the guy before her, the big boom? I mean, that was really, we were all amazed at that. He says, no, no, no. They gave out of their abundance. She gave everything she had. And that widow impressed the Lord. And we see then in the math of God and the scale of God that we are not measured by the booms necessarily, but we're measured in terms of what we can do. And God knows our hearts. He knows everything that we have. He gave us everything we have in the first place. It seems to me that as I've talked over the years about money, and I I probably haven't spoken on this in a year and a half around here, okay? Okay. But over the years, I have spoken on it. I have, there are generally two kinds of responses whenever I say, we're talking about money today. There are people who are upset about it, and then there are people that are humbled by it. 
I can talk about almost anything else here. I get up and say, you know what we're talking about? Uh, we're talking about sin today. We're talking about atonement today. We're talking about marriage today. We're talking about this, that, and the other today. People go, oh, that's really good. I'm glad you spoke on that today. When I say we're talking about money, it's like silence in the room. In fact, listen carefully right now. People weird out whenever God's word is opened on the subject of money. And I have to conclude the reason for that is that we love it so much. In fact, think of the emotions that you're experiencing right now inside of you. And what might those feelings that you're having as I talk about this indicate about where your heart is actually at? Richard Halverson said this, Jesus Christ said more about money than about any other single thing because when it comes to a man's real nature, money is of first importance. Money is an exact index of a man's true character. All through Scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles money, which is just what Jesus is saying here. So, towards the goal of all of us being rich, in the right place, which is not necessarily here, but is there in eternity. You know, that's the place you want to be rich. You want to lay up treasure in heaven. I got three essentials for laying up treasure in heaven. And before I get to those, I want to make one thing totally clear. We are in no way talking about buying your way into heaven. Salvation is not a buy your way in. It is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Christ paid our way into heaven with the blood he shed on the cross for our sin. And I don't want anybody here thinking, oh, maybe I can show up there and I can pay the guy in the back. I'm getting in the back door. I got a buddy at the back door. I'm dropping him a little bit of cash and in I go. No. You want to go to heaven, repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus. And God says he'll give us eternal life. We're not talking about buying our way into heaven. Here's what we're talking about. When Jesus Christ becomes your Savior, he changes you. And he changes us right down to our checkbook. As Sam Houston said, Sam Houston became a Christian. He got baptized. He gave a large gift after that. They said, Sam Houston, why are you giving money to those Christian crazy people and all that? He says, when I got baptized, my my pocketbook got baptized too. How true that is. So how, do we, how are we rich towards God? How do we lay up treasure in heaven? i got three things. Here's the first. Stewardship living. We have to live our life as stewards. Here's what the Bible says about everything that you own. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 24. Job 41. God says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And these and so many other verses are trying to help us realize something. The things that we think are ours, the things that we call my possession and my house and my car, God says, that is mine. We don't own anything. You can know what you own by what you take into eternity with you. Nothing, right? We all die with an empty hand. And God says, all of it is mine. And when it comes to understanding how to lay up treasure in heaven, the very first starting point is, I've got to realize this, my stuff's not my stuff. This is God's stuff. Now, if you're not a Christian here, that's a hard thing for you to understand. But if you're a Christian here today, you've given him your whole life. Even your body is not your own. All of this is God's. I am simply a temporary manager of God's stuff. And a steward is somebody who manages whatever God gives to him or her in the way that God would want it used. I'm stewarding this. Okay, God, how would you want me to use this? Now, does that mean we can't spend money on on things? No. Does that mean that we can't buy a house? No. Does that mean we can't invest for retirement? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that I don't ultimately view the things that God gives to me as mine. I can have possessions, but they don't possess me because I don't see them as mine. They are God's. And that of all the things, if you want to take a step on the path to a generous life that's rich towards God, that is the necessary first step, is to 
is to somehow unchain your heart from the things that you have and to not see them as yours. Now, I remember uh, as an example of this some years ago, my nephew, Zach, um, when, when we have family people that come into town, you know, brothers and sisters with nieces and nephews, we always, we always take a trip to Albany's Candy Factory. How many children here like Albany's Candy Factory? How many adults here like Albany's Candy Factory? Okay, all right. I receive, I receive no official um, sponsorship uh, for mentioning this, by the way. Uh, but we, we go to Albany's Candy Factory. So off we go to Albany's Candy Factory, and I got my nephew, Zach. And we get in there, and I say, okay, Zach, you can pick out whatever you want. And we got one of the big bags, you know. And so he goes around, and he's picking out gummy bears and gummy snakes and gummy soldiers and gummy planes and what don't they have that's not a gummy something there, you know. And he's just piling. I threw in some chocolate this, chocolate that, and all that. He's got this great big bag of candy. His eyes are, you know, huge. He's loving it. So I said, okay, Zach, uh, let me take care of this. So I go over to the cash register. I buy the candy. We go walking. If you've you've been there, you know. I buy the candy. I take whatever eight steps it is to the door, open the door, begin taking steps out on the sidewalk. And as I'm walking along carrying this big bag of candy, I reach in and I take one gummy bear out and I go like this. My nephew, Zach, says, Uncle Steve, don't eat my candy. I was like, you ungrateful. I buy you a thousand gummy things in every shape and color. I buy it and I give it to you. And seven seconds later, you're going to rebuke me for eating one gummy bear that I gave to you in the first place. How God must be in heaven looking down upon us and think, I have given you things and resources and possessions in every size, shape, and color. And you resent me to give me one gummy bear? And you see, that's why I think it really is an indictment on our hearts, and I'll put myself right in the mix on this, that whenever we get to passages like this, we get all, it's my gummy. My gummy. My stuff is not my stuff. This also calls for God's people to be the best money managers around. You want to know why? Because we are handling the king's money. This is not my money. This is the king's money. And this doesn't mean that we have to be cheap or we can't enjoy nice things. But it does mean that we are watchful and careful and prudent in our decisions to make sure that we are able to give to others who are in need and that we are able to support the Lord's work, which is the one thing that God is doing in this world. What is God doing? He is building his church. And Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is coming for the church. He's not coming for a college. He's not coming for a camp. He's not coming for some other organization. He is coming for his church. Which is why I am privileged to serve in the thing that God is doing here. And that we all have our, should have our hearts here because Jesus has his heart in the local church. I think, tragically, many Christians will be impoverished in eternity because after their cable bill, their internet bill, their new car payments, their more-than-they-can-afford house payment, their timeshare, their credit card interest payments, their fitness center dues, and their daily Starbucks latte, they say to God, I'd be generous, but I don't have enough money. My dear friend... We are the richest Christians in the history of the church. 
We do not lack money. We lack wisdom. And many will land in eternity with deep regret for the way that we have squandered the king's money. You know, Rick Warren talks about that in his, in, uh, his book. He has the dot and then the long line. And he says, the dot is your life, all of it, however many years you live on this earth. The long line is eternity, and the principle is simple. Don't live for the dot. Why? If you can choose between being rich in the dot or being rich in the long line that extends into eternity, which do you choose? That's not a hard choice, is it? Why choose the dot? And yet so many people professing to be followers of Jesus living for the dot. I'm about the dot. Don't talk to me about the long line. I'm all focused on, I'm all focused on the dot. You are so short-sighted, my friend. And I don't want anybody in this church to come up to me in eternity and say, why didn't you tell me? I was all about all the stuff everybody told me I needed to do and buy and have and all the rest. Man, if I could go back now, I would so live my life differently in that American culture. I don't want any of you to come up to me and say, you didn't hear, you didn't know. I'm telling you right now, the line is long. Live for the line. Lay up treasure in heaven. We have our Financial Peace University classes, which might be a help to many to get your whole like world in a place where you create margin so that you can support the Lord's work. You can invest in eternity. I would compare that person with this kind of person, the stewarding Christian who, as Proverbs says, watches over his flocks. He has learned self-control and delayed gratification. He doesn't have to have the latest greatest. He can have the latest greatest, but he doesn't have to have the latest greatest. She clips her coupons. He might brown bag it to work every day to create margin. They are neither monks nor opulent. They are stewards. And they live with margin. And they never make a financial decision that doesn't give them margin to be generous and to be rich towards heaven. That's a steward. Steward living. So let me ask you right now, which of those two does your lifestyle more closely resemble. Now, two and three principles I'm grouping together. You want to be rich in heaven? Generous giving, kingdom investing. So much about this in the Bible, I don't have time to do it justice, but let me just give you one example. Here's Holy Scripture exhorting us to live this way. This is the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. A poor area. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. By the way, this would be like him saying, you know, the churches in Gary, they are taking up offering after offering after offering. They have overflowing generosity in Gary, and they're giving gifts to that church in Crown Point. Or he's actually comparing the generosity of the Corinthians, the Crown Pointians, with those of the Macedonian East Hammondians. If the poor can be generous, why can't the rich? That's what he's saying, basically. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. There's a principle from God. In the economy of God, you sow little, you get little. You sow much, you get much. And much there isn't necessarily financial, but that's not the point of this sermon. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And there we see that glad-heartedness. You, you, know, you know your heart is good when you're glad to give. You know, where the offering's a high point in the service. There's no people going, oh, man, We're cheerful about it. We're glad. Why? It's not mine. It's not mine. It's God's. I can give away God's stuff freely and gladly, cheerfully. 
So what is generous? How about if we identify what generous is not? And in doing this, I have a couple of statistics from studies that were, have been done. The average American evangelical gives 2.5% of their income away. And that's giving of any kind. I mean, that could be like the Cub Scouts and cookies from the Girl Scouts or something, I think. It's just like any giving of any kind. 2.5%. Here's a staggering statistic. 40% of evangelical Christians give absolutely nothing at all. 40%. So that'd be like taking this whole auditorium, it's roughly half, okay? This half, zero. This half, supporting everything God's doing. 40%. Now tell me, are there going to be a lot of people that are going to step into eternity with deep regrets, especially the Christians who come from the richest country in the history of the world. I think so. And I don't want any of us to be those people. And yet, the charts and the, uh, the, the, the information that I get, our church is pretty much the same as that statistic. Almost half the people, roughly, that attend here from anything that we can discern, zero. Now, maybe they're giving 30% away to some mission agency. I don't know, but I doubt it. I doubt it. And my dear friend, do I love you? Am, am, I, am I loving you to simply say to you, it's okay, go on your way, it'll be fine? No! I want you rich in heaven. I want you to high-five me and say, man, thanks for giving me that word. I lived my life generously, and man, I am so glad that I did. That's what I want. I think that's what God wants. I think all of us should be regularly asking ourselves, am I giving at a level that when I'm dead, I'll be glad I did? And I'll just tell you, three seconds, two seconds after you die, you're not going to care what your T-roll price account is at. No one's in heaven going, did you see the stock market today? It's fantastic. Or, oh no, it's down. You're not going to care. You're not going to care about the value of your house. You're not going to care about what you got in your bank account. Your pension, you're not going to care about that. But you are going to care to the ultimate of what he thinks of you. And the quality of service that you offer to him in this one life that you have. And you're still alive right now. Which means that you still have the opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven. And I would add to you that this is the real life. This is, this is the best life. The keeping, the hoarding, all of that, that's an empty way to live. Jesus said it this way, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's real living. Now Randy Alcorn wrote a book. Some of you maybe have seen this. It's called The Treasure Principle. It's not very big. You could probably read it in an hour. I've read it many times, preparing for messages and, and uh, whatnot. The Treasure Principle. It says on the front, and this is an old copy, over 600,000 copies in print. It's probably way over a million, maybe two by now. God has really used this little book to help mobilize the church towards a generous lifestyle. And he has in the book, at the end of the book, he has what he calls the Giving Covenant. Five principles uh, for the generous life. And I just want to share these with you. See if these resonate with your heart. Number one, I affirm God's full ownership of me and everything entrusted to me. Can you say yes to that? Number two, I set aside the first fruits. That's an Old Testament principle of giving to God first, not last. At least 10%. It's another principle called the tithe. It's not a sermon. This is not a sermon on that. Those are available if you want to hear them. Of every wage and gift I receive as holy and belonging exclusively to the Lord. No, number three, by the way, of the tithing principle, I just, I, it makes me think about, uh, I got my parents here in the third row. Growing up, had an allowance, a dollar a week. My dad is Dutch. A dollar a week. 
But praise God, even as a child, I got a dollar, and every single week at church, I put a dime in the offering plate. And sometimes, you know, you put that dime in, and I was like, that's like a gumball. Okay, God. But it set me on a course of a life lived with the tithing principle. And you parents, start young, start early, and let them see you doing it with your own, and you'll raise a more generous child. Number three, out of the remaining treasures God entrusts to me, I seek to make generous free will gifts. Number four, I ask God to teach me to give sacrificially to his purposes, including helping the poor and reaching the lost. Number five, recognizing that I cannot take earthly treasures from this world, I determine to lay them up as heavenly treasures for Christ's glory and the eternal good of others and myself. If we could just do those five with the right heart, what a transformation into generosity it would be for us as a congregation. So my dear friends, I want you to just, just look at that, okay? Just look at that. How are you doing? Are you laying up treasures here? Are you laying up treasures in heaven? So right now what I'd like us to do is let's just, let's just contemplate that a moment. Let's have a little few moments of meditation here. We'll leave this up. And I'd just like for you to consider, am I rich here or am I rich there? And God, what would you have me do? I think for many people, the first step is repentance. Okay? It's repentance. Malachi calls it robbing God. And I have to say, I think we have many people that for a long time have been robbing God. That's a very precarious position to be in. But God is, has grace. If we confess our sins, he is faithful just. He will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Perhaps it's some kind of a further step that God would lay on your heart. Whatever it is. Let's just have a little time of quiet right here. And then I'll pray and we'll be done. So let's just contemplate this together. Father, we know that no man can serve both God and money. And we want to be solidly on the God side. 